This podcast was produced and recorded by Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church of Ocala, Florida. This is a collection of sermons and talks by our founding pastor, Ted Strawbridge. These recordings were salvaged from cassette tapes dating back to the 90s. We hope you enjoy. Let's begin with Father's Day, Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do. O peoples, nations, and men of every language, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace so hot, that the flames of the fire 
killed the men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his survivors, Wasn't it three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. The satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you again from a rather lengthy reading of Scripture, we read a story that's told in a particular way. Repetition, lengthy sentences at times. Sometimes it includes things that we don't even understand, that we're not certain of what they mean. What is a safe trap, a pretext? We know that they're officials. We know that they were gathered around to see what would happen. Father, we pray that you would come and speak to us from your word this morning. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you three quick things that you can see from this story about real faith. We make up all kinds of ideas about what faith is, and mostly our faith is just boring. We don't allow ourselves to walk on the edge of real faith enough. And so our life is basically okay. When I was at General Assembly in Atlanta, I walked with the professor. General Assembly is a great time for me because you get moments with people that you'd have to pay a lot of money to get somewhere else. But if you can catch them in the right place or if you can buy them lunch, you can get an hour of somebody's time. And I'm walking with, uh, <clears throat> golly, now I've forgotten his name. Sorry, I have to say it like this. Dr. Kelly. Dr. Kelly from North Carolina. And Dr. Kelly is a systematic theologian at Reformed Theological Seminary. And as we were walking, the moon was rising, and he saw the moon, and it was a crescent-shaped moon. And he said, let's pray for just a moment. And he stopped and prayed. And he says, every time he sees a crescent, he stops and prays for the fall of Islam. And every time he sees a star, he's reminded of the star of David. And he prays that Jewish people will come to know Christ. And we're so awed. And our prayers now are looking about like this. That myself and the other guys that are there just start asking him about his prayer life. And, and he starts telling us this story in his North Carolina little hillbilly cult. But he says some great things. 
times when he himself was encouraged to pray. And one of the things that broke his heart was when somebody said to him uh, uh, in a sermon, if God answered every single one of your prayers this week, what difference would it make? And I thought, wow. You know, if God answered every single one of my prayers this week, I have a nice family, good home, kids would be obedient. My wife would think I was a real stud. That's mostly common belief. She, of course, does think I'm a real stud. But you can talk to her about that later. No, really. Uh, that question pierced my soul as it has pierced him. What are you doing this week? If, if God answered every single one of your prayers that you prayed this week, what difference in the world would it make? Wow, what a thought. When we think about real faith and we come to these stories, we see three guys who had real faith. And it made a tremendous difference. We've talked about the book of Daniel before. We want to learn the book as we go through it, not just make some nice little ditty comments. We really want to learn what the purpose of the book of Daniel was for. And so we have to learn a little something about the book. Daniel is 12 chapters. It's in two parts. Take your right hand and reach out this way, whichever way that is. Reach your right hand out to the right. All right, Daniel is two parts. First part, right hand side. First part, Daniel 1 through 6. Second part, Daniel 7 through 12. No hitting your spouse. Children, this is a dangerous place for families to play. Okay, put your hands together. We'll do that every once in a while. Daniel comes in two parts, chapters 1 through 6. Our biography tales. There's stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because in Daniel 7 through 12, Daniel is going to make all kinds of prophecies and revelations. What happens in your heart when someone comes to sell you Amway? And they say, we've got this great plan of networking for you. Now, if you know anything about Amway at all, you may know that there is a potential that there is some financial benefit for you. But if you're like me, because you understand one thing is characteristically true of those kinds of companies. It may be good for me, but it's going to be better still for them. And so I begin to suspect, now maybe what all this guy has to say, it might be true and it might turn out to be good for me, but you know what? I guarantee one thing, if I get in and sell stuff, it's going to be good for them. And so I sort of wonder, now what's their motive like? Are they really concerned for me? Or are they going to get theirs in the end? Daniel, in chapters 7 through 12, is going to make some great prophecies of great revelation. And Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, is written after the Jewish people have been invited to come back to Jerusalem. Only Daniel's not coming. Daniel's going to stay in exile in another kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 7 to 12, he's going to tell the people who remain in deportation that God's benefit is not going to come back to Jerusalem for a long, long time. In fact, God is going to set up other kingdoms along the way before he brings his kingdom funny thing. Who's that going to benefit? It's going to benefit Daniel. He's one of the people who 
believers are going to benefit from God's not bringing about the restoration that he seems to have promised. So when the original audience get the book of Daniel, the first thing they're going to say is just what you say when you answer the phone and someone says they'd like to come see you and talk about a great networking plan. They said, uh-huh, yeah, sure that's what God wants to do. Because it works for you, doesn't it, Daniel? You're going to remain enfranchised. You're going to remain in power. See, their question is just like yours. How reliable or trustworthy is Daniel? How can we trust that these things that Daniel says is true? That's chapters 7 through 12. Chapters 1 through 6 are stories that happened 70 years before the book was written. They're stories that are written down to tell the people, look, this Daniel is a guy that you can trust. He's not a part of any conspiracy. He's not a part of anything that's going to set himself up. Daniel knows what real faith is. Daniel chapter 1. Remember, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, set themselves apart by refusing to eat the choice meat and the wine. Daniel's that kind of guy. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is proven by his ability to explain Nebuchadnezzar's dream even when Nebuchadnezzar won't tell him what it's like, what the dream was about. Daniel is set up as somebody who's incredibly holy and worthy and trustworthy because his understanding of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is true. In Daniel chapter 3, we see this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a story about what real faith is. What real faith is. If you're going to talk to people in our culture, you have to be able to demonstrate real faith. Modernism is going to be described as something that lasted from approximately 1879, the French Revolution, the Bastille Day, until 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. That's a chunk of time that historians are going to say that was a philosophical modernist age. That's the age of time when men thought that truth could be explained apart from God. And apart from Him, they could answer all the problems that men face. Either through science or education or materialism. That's the modernistic thinking. That truth could be maintained through materialism or education or science and technology. You stand and your children stand like a great polar bear on a piece of ice that's broken away from the island, from the frozen island, and it begins to move away ever so slowly. Our generation is not modernist. We are postmodernist. And we do not believe that all things can be explained by materialism, and we do not believe that all things can be explained by education. And we do not believe that all things can be explained by some kind of supreme, without some kind of supreme being. You understand? The modernist was able to explain all of his life and his faith apart from God, simply in the existence of what man was able to do. But the postmodernist, the age that you live in now and that your children will grow up in, has thrown that off and said, no, that's not true can't explain it all. 
the postmodernist doesn't even try to argue about truth at all. See, the modernist, you remember, in our presentation of the gospel, what we used to do was the person we're trying to evangelize, they stacked up their evidence, and we stacked up our evidence, and whoever had the biggest stack, theoretically, won that argument. And if our stack was bigger, then God must be true. And if their stack was bigger, then they walked away feeling like they had disproven God. The postmodernist doesn't even care about truth at all. He can sit there and say yes to both sides and merrily walk away. He could say yes to A, and he can say yes to non-A. It just doesn't matter. So what you have to learn is how to demonstrate real faith because when you begin to communicate faith in Jesus Christ, what are people going to say in our generation? They won't fight you as they would before because they don't care about truth. Now they'll simply say, oh yeah, that's great. And I'm really glad that works for you. In my New Age channeling crystals over here, they really work for me. And I'm so happy you've got Jesus. And I'm so happy I've got my channeling crystals. And we just love each other. You know? Why does a lady on her deathbed, uh, not on her deathbed, on the uh, operating room table, she's, uh, I think she's having a heart attack, something rather, you know, I'm real sensitive to that. Something's wrong with her. She's on the operating room table. She dies. <gasps> I love it. A friend of mine's playing a church in Binghamton, New York, and IBM has one of its corporate headquarters there. And, uh, this guy had been coming to his church, and he said, you know, I want to ask you something. He said, what do you think about this lady's book about uh, life after death? And Jim, you know, not being the sweet, caring person that I am, looked at him and he said, Do you use that brain at work? The guy said, Excuse me? And he said, You work for IBM. Supposing some woman came to you and she said, There I was, flat out on the table, and I saw this light, and it told me everything about networking computers together and how they could be used in corporate business. What would you say? You'd say this lady's gonzo. She's nuts. And you'd go back to your books and you'd study and you'd find credible evidence. How come when it comes to faith in God, who's a little bit bigger than computers, would you take the testimony of this person who says she saw a lot and now she knows all about heaven instead of biblical confirmed evidence and the testimony of the living God. You see, the reason that that book became a bestseller hot off the presses is because we are in a postmodern age, not a modern age. The modern age wouldn't have cared a rip about that book because they can explain their life with science, technology, and education. But the postmodernist wants to know not truth but they want some, they recognize there's something out there. There's something out there. So uh, the reason I, I can mock this lady, I saw her on 60 Minutes, and, and uh, I think it's one of those 60 media news shows on that day. But anyway, she was on one of those shows. And, and I have not read the book, so I want to qualify my judgment. But what hurt me was when she was standing up there, and, and I should say this too, if you've read the book, there were people that were in tears because the book had meant so much to them. And so some of you may have read it and it may have meant a great deal to you. 
I just want to warn you to be careful because this is what I saw. This woman standing there before supposedly intelligent people answering questions. And she's got the cards that they turned the questions into her on. And she's answering questions like, are all people good? Yes. Is anybody bad? No. Are all people going to heaven? Yes. Is anybody going to hell? I'm not sure. And these people are listening to this garbage with tears running down their eyes. See? But what she is sold is some kind of a relationship with some kind of supreme being. And if they can just get close to her and get just a little bit of it, ah, But if you're going to reach your culture, you have to be able to demonstrate real things. They're not going to argue about facts and about truth. They want to see the credible evidence of what real faith is like. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three quick steps. Daniel chapter 3. Real faith does not... I'll read it off here. Both an insert. True faith does not preempt conflict. True faith takes responsibility. In this story... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are prepared. They've been worshiping Yahweh all along. True faith does not preempt conflict. Sometimes we sort of get the idea that if we really believed, that if we really had faith in God, then everything would just go along smoothly and we wouldn't face any conflict. I want you to see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had real faith and they were doing a real work and they were living in a hard culture and they were being faithful. And yet, in spite of their real faith in a true and sovereign God, their life came to this point of incredible conflict. We get the idea that if you have true faith, you won't have any problems. Real faith does not preempt conflict. The time has come. The line is drawn in the sand. Nebuchadnezzar's raised up a 90-foot gold statue. Now what are they going to do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faithful men, proving themselves already to be faithful to Yahweh, now have to face this conflict. What's going to happen? I want you to see that real faith uh, does not preempt conflict. I'm going to read to you from 2 Corinthians. Chapter 9, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 11, Paul boasts, Paul begins to boast about his suffering. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. He's defending himself because the Corinthians are being drawn in by other people that, uh, that are saying that Paul's not, not as worthy or not as good as these new teachers that have come to speak to him. Listen to what happened in Paul's life. What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, uh, verse 21, I also dare to boast about. Are you Hebrews? So am I. Are you Israelites? So am I. They Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. Now listen to the life of Paul. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. 
Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been told naked. Besides everything else, I face daily my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? I'll stop there. It's enough for you to hear that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a living and true faith, and that did not preempt them from facing real conflict. But in the face of conflict, they took responsibility. First part of this story is a great testimony when they just say, No, uh uh-uh, sorry, I'm not going to do it. They don't boast about it, they don't brag about it. It's the other people who begin to say, Wait a minute, these Jews over here, they're not acting right. It's a great story. Initial conflict, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this other king. The tension mounts as these other people begin to tell stories about Shadrach and Meshach. They won't do this, they won't bow down. Turning point comes in Daniel chapter 3. I think the turning point of the story would be when God rescues them out of the fire and burn. not. Part of this story is this statement. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold who is set up first point is, true faith does not preempt conflict. The second point I want you to see is that true faith is not in our ability to predict what God is going to do. True faith is not measured by our ability to predict what God is going to do. Uh, from Jeff Hacker's book, Knowing God, uh, when he's talking about God's wisdom and ours, he says, uh, that there is a morbid and deadening condition. The result of wounded pride of one who thought he knew all about the ways of God and providence, and then was made to learn by bitter and bewildering experience that he didn't. The truth is that God in his wisdom to make and keep us humble and to teach us to walk by faith has hidden from us almost everything that we should like to know about the providential purposes which he is working out in the church and in our own lives. Uh, not a good old, you know, healthy thing, not a good uh, encouraging illustration. And I'm really trying to go fast. But I want you to hear this too. True faith is not our ability to predict what God is going to do. And what Packer is saying is, when we try to do that, when we try to guess out what our providence is going to be in our life, and 
then God doesn't do what we thought he was going to do, we get real angry and real bitter. What I want you to see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is what they say is we're not going to bow down to your God. And our God can save us. See, their faith is not dependent on their ability to state that he will save Save. They say he could save to understand this. Even if he doesn't, even if in his promise he is torched, he will not die. When you live your Christian life in front of your home, that's the kind of faith that we've got to demonstrate. Not in our ability to predict what's going to happen. Not in our ability to prevent conflict from happening in our life. Real faith trusts in God. Finally, I want you to see uh, that true faith is built on strong evidence. Why did Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego have that kind of confidence? Because they'd already been with them. They'd already refused the wine and the meat. They'd already lived off the vegetables and the water. They had seen God's miraculous hand. Do you believe that God walked with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Do you believe that that's true? really happened. The reason that they had the kind of faith that they did was because they believed that God had done those kinds of things before and he could do it again. True faith never walks alone. But it's constantly built on a firm evidence God is faithful. He is never Because God exalts himself through his love, because God is chosen to exalt himself through his love, he is more willing to enjoy himself by walking with you in the midst of the fire. The whole table that we come to this morning is a statement that Jesus will not leave us alone. Jesus told the disciples that he was leaving, that he would be gone for some time, but he would not leave them for he would send another one to his come. We have an open communion, that is, we invite all who profess the name of Christ to come and take the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We continue to observe this sacrament, not because our faith is strong and mighty and because we stand bold, but because we find ourselves and because we find sin at work in our lives. Real faith is not able to gut your way through anything. Real faith is able to say, hey, I don't know what God is going to do at all, regardless of committing myself to him. Jesus gave us this sacrament so that we could show forth his body and his blood and his death until such time as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had real faith, not because they did the first two alone, but because in the end, they walked with God. God was willing to come and meet and walk with them.